This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 22, recorded November 28, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lionel Chow. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Tim. How are you doing today? Good. Both of us are from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today on Twipo, we thought we'd do something different. It's getting close to the end of the year. Uh, We started this podcast series, I think, back in March 2011. We're now on the verge of December 2011, and one of the things, Lionel, I've noticed is that there's a lot more going on in pediatric oncology research than I really appreciated before starting this podcast. You know, I review, I get a sort of an automatic feed of published papers every day, and I probably glance at between 10 and 20 titles every day related to our field, which is a lot more than I ever thought was even being produced. And I don't know if you found that same same thing, but... Uh, we haven't been able to get through anywhere close to all those papers. No, absolutely not. There's, there's been, there have been uh, many, many high quality uh, papers, both at the basic and at the clinical science levels, uh, which uh, we just not have the time to to, to go through. And uh, um, so, I think uh, today's episode is going to try to address some of that. Yeah. So I feel like I'm falling way behind, basically, and this is going to be an opportunity to catch up. So what we thought we'd do with the final couple weeks of the year is pick a topic each of the next couple of weeks and try to catch up by basically doing something we said we weren't going to do. The purpose of this podcast in general was to take a paper and do like a journal club, dig into it, talk about the pros and cons, go beyond the headlines, and give our listeners a sense of the details and the nuances of the paper. Today we're going to try to just basically mention a number of papers, look at the abstract mention the title and the conclusions, and ask our listeners if there's any particular paper that you hear about that you want to hear in more detail to hear about the nuances, for example. Uh, We can then pick that for a topic for one of our future podcasts. So to the listeners, if you pay attention and you're listening to something and you want to hear more about it, feel free to email us to tell us that you want to hear more about it, and we'll devote part of an upcoming podcast to that paper. And our email address, of course, is twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. So why don't we start off today? We're going to do neuro-oncology, so brain tumors. Uh, We're going to focus on uh, medulloblastoma and ependymoma and then glioma, both low-grade and high-grade gliomas. And hopefully we'll be able to get through a number of these abstracts. We probably have 20 or so papers we want to just touch on and we'll see what we can get through today. So why don't we get started with medulloblastoma. There was certainly a lot of activity in this topic this year. Yeah, absolutely. Very banner year for medulloblastoma research. And once again, I think uh, uh, that the papers that we're going to go through uh, cover the gamut of uh, both basic science and genetic research as well as uh, some clinical studies. So um, let's get right to it. Yeah, so I'm going to start off with a couple of papers that have to do with diagnosis. Then uh, we'll have you talk about some of the genetic studies that have been done, and then we'll end up with one paper about treatment and one paper about side effects. So uh, I thought the most interesting one of our pile appeared in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. It was entitled Detection of Human Cytomegalovirus in Medulloblastomas 
reveals a potential therapeutic target. This was done by a series of investigators in Europe, mostly in Sweden, also some investigators in Norway. Uh, the first author was Nanib Beriano, excuse my pronunciation, which is probably wrong. But basically what they did was look at a lot of different primary samples and uh, cell lines of medulloblastoma and detected uh, human cytomegalovirus, CMV. We know this is a prominent, uh, common infection, most notorious for being passed among infants in daycares. Uh, it causes problems with, um, it can reactivate and cause problems following blood transfusions and immunodeficient patients. Um, it's one of the herpes family of viruses. The herpes family of viruses, of course, are known uh, in some cases to uh, induce cancers or be associated with cancer induction. I guess the most notorious one is EBV. Uh, CMV is also known to have some pro-tumorigenic effects. Uh, it can increase production of a variety of different cellular genes that are associated with cancer progression like COX-2, STAT-3, prostaglandin E2, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF, and also other pro-inflammatory and pro-angiogenic molecules like IL-6. And there have been some scattered reports about the detection of CMV in, in different brain tumors, and this is probably one of the best done papers, I think, uh, in this area with medulloblastoma. The question that has been has arisen with these is whether CMV is just an opportunistic infection. Is it just like the tumor microenvironment mm -hmm. and the dividing cells and, and that sort of growth factor rich environment, or is it actual causal? Right. And uh, in this case, they have some pretty compelling evidence that, that it's causal and that it might be a target for therapy. So uh, interestingly enough, in a number of their xenograph models, they use the antiviral drug valgancyclovir, and uh, we're able to downregulate some of the CMV-induced ex uh, expression of genes like COX-2 uh, and prostaglandin, and they were also able to affect tumor growth. And, and the uh, drug did not inhibit the growth of cell lines that were negative for CMV, so yeah. that is a nice control. So, you know, I think uh, the, I'm very much interested in my own research in the relationship between virus infections and cancer. Uh, we know there are some other types of viruses that cause cancer, like human papillomavirus and cervical and head neck squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, and this appears to be an emerging area for brain tumors. Yeah, uh, just to mention really quickly that cytomegalovirus has, uh, there's, a, there's a large, um, well, a decent set of um, literature surrounding the involvement of cytomegalovirus in uh, glioblastoma multiforme as well. Most of that literature and all of that literature is concerning the disease in adults, not in children. So I don't know that anybody has done uh, the equivalent study of similar to this study here in uh, the pediatric population. But I just came back from a meeting where there was a, a poster session sort of just dedicated to CMV involvement in glioblastoma. So that's certainly a hot area of research as well. Right. It'll be amazing, I think, if we can treat uh, cancers with antivirals. So the next one I wanted to mention is, is a short paper about looking at biomarkers for medulloblastoma. As you know, a biomarker is a protein or a substance or something we can measure, a gene expression perhaps, in, in any tissue or blood that could be useful in uh, clinical care or therapy. So in this case, what they, the investigators did, and this is uh, a paper that appeared in the journal called Proteomics. It was performed by a number of investigators collaborating 
between Children's National Medical Center in D.C. and the uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and, and then Texas Children's, uh, as well as uh, members of the Pediatric Brain Tumor Consortium. And basically they took 33 patients with medulloblastoma, collected uh, cerebral spinal fluid from these patients, and then looked at a proteomic analysis where they try to measure what proteins are in there and how much and compared those to 25 age-matched control patients. So they did mass spec proteomics on these patients' samples. They detected uh, 76 protein spots corresponding to 25 unique proteins by mass spec. And of those, they found one in particular that was different between the, the patients with known medulloblastoma and those with uh, no tumor, and that was prostaglandin D2 synthase. And that protein was actually down-regulated or down-expressed in patients with medulloblastoma by a factor of six-fold. And so they suggest that this might be a host response to the presence of tumor, and that as a biomarker, it might be useful in either monitoring the effectiveness of treatment or the detection of recurrence. Now, none of that was tested here. This is just a report that this protein expression seemed to be different in these patients. Uh, but so it opens up the possibility of doing some clinical trials to see if whether this is a legitimate and a useful biomarker. Yes, and hopefully these investigators are following up on this study uh, either in a current uh, uh, clinical trial or uh, retrospectively with uh, uh, frozen CSF samples, which uh, you know are, are quite readily available for this disease. So. And the other question I guess I didn't address is whether this uh, protein is expressed in the blood as well and might be detectable. Um, as a biomarker in blood yeah. and not just CSF. Yes. So what about all this uh, genetics activity with respect to medulloblastoma this year? Yeah, so 2011 certainly was a banner year for, uh, for uh, the genetics of uh, medulloblastoma. There were sort of two main clusters of papers that were published. The first paper was published in the journal Science um, in January of this year by a large group of investigators, mainly at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University uh, in Baltimore. And the first author on this paper was uh, Will Parsons, and the title of the paper is The Genetic Landscape of Childhood Cancer Medulloblastoma. And what this group at the Hopkins has been doing over the last several years is systematically analyzing groups of tumors um, by both high-density copy number analysis using array technology, as well as by using uh, deep sequencing technology to sequence the, the exons of many of the genes, uh, of all the genes in these tumors. So that's what they did in this case with medulloblastoma. They had a set of 22 medulloblastomas in which they were able to perform, as I said, high-density microarray to look at copy number alterations at the DNA level, and then also uh, to sequence all the known protein coding genes and microRNA genes in these tumors. And they were able, because they've done this from several sets of tumors in the past, including uh, pancreatic tumor and glioblastoma, both adult tumors, they were able to compare the number of genetic alterations that occurred on average in each tumor uh, in each medulloblastoma compared to these adult tumors. And what they found was that, surprisingly, there were only 11, on average, 11 gene alterations uh, that were occurring in the medulloblastomas compared to, which was a factor of 5 to 10 less than adult tumors like glioblastoma 
and uh, pancreatic tumor, suggesting that you know a lot fewer changes are required to get this type of pediatric cancer um, in particular. And perhaps you know as they increase the uh, sample numbers or the tumor types, perhaps uh, this is a general will be a general feature of pediatric tumors. And then beyond that, they analyze, of course, the specific mutations that they uh, identified in these, this group of medulloblastomas. Two of the uh, alterations that they identified were ones that uh, were well known uh, to be involved in this uh, group of tumors, and these are alterations that affect two signaling pathways, two developmental signaling pathways that regulate uh, the development of cells in the neural cells in the cerebellum, where, which is where the medulloblastoma occurs. And these are the hedgehog and the wind pathways. So we've previously known that there are subgroups of medulloblastomas that are primarily driven by alterations in these two different pathways separately. Um, but most interestingly, uh, what they found uh, through their sequencing analysis was the in involvement of a pathway that we didn't previously know to be um, active in medulloblastoma, and that was that in 16% of their samples, they found inactivating mutations affecting two genes called MLL2 and MLL3, which play a role in um, histone methylation. As I said, this was not previously known to uh, be a target or to be a, an oncogenic uh, um, new uh, oncogenic pathway for these tumors. So this sort of opens up a new area uh, for investigation as well as uh, potentially a new area for uh, molecular targeting of, uh, of this disease. Yeah, of course, histone methylation or DNA epigenetic modifications in general are becoming quite a hot topic in cancer and a lot of drugs that modify those have been developed and are continuing to be developed. So that's Yes, absolutely. And then the bulk of the the bulk of the work in in um, genetics and medulloblastoma occurred, um, or was published at least, in the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And there were actually a set of um, uh, four papers published in that issue from a combination of different groups. So the first one is a paper with the first author of David Ellison, and uh, he is at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And this was a collaborative work between Memphis as well as uh, groups in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, sorry. Um, and the title of this paper was Definition of Disease Risk Stratification Groups in Childhood Metroblastoma Using Combined Clinical, Pathologic, and Molecular Variables. Really, the thrust of this paper was to try to take some of the information that we already know about different molecular subgroups in, in medulloblastoma and to make this, this data or these, uh, this information applicable to a, a pathology lab in Nowheresville, USA, you know, to, to make this technology uh, applicable to a, any pathology lab anywhere in the world to be able to take advantage of um, these subgroups and be able to identify them without having to resort to very high-tech uh, technology like sequencing or uh, microarray, which every, every place cannot do, of course. Uh, and so they really focused on the use of formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissues for their analysis, which, of course, is the type of tissue that the yeah, majority everybody has yeah. access to to make the diagnoses. So the techniques they use uh, are things that every uh, pathology lab should be able to do, including immuno immunohistochemistry, fluorescent in situ hybridization, or FISH. And they do do uh, some direct sequencing of tumors, but just a very targeted uh, genes, uh, once again, from material that was uh, isolated from the paraffin-embedded tissues. 
And what they were able to identify in this paper was a combination of clinical features and molecular features that can uh, subdivide patients into low-risk, standard-risk, and high-risk patients, which have very significant outcome differences between these uh, risk groups. Um, so the features that define the low-risk patients in uh, this paper were beta-catenin nuclear positivity. So this is an immunohistochemical assay. Beta-catenin is a member of the Wnt pathway. And um, by using immunohistochemistry to localize this, this protein, particular protein to the nucleus, that was a feature of low-risk patients. But that was only a feature of low-risk patients in the absence of the clinical features of the patient. For example, no uh, metastases at presentation. And then histological features such as the absence of a large cell anaplastic phenotype, which we know is already a high-risk feature, and the absence of MYC amplification on fish. So you can see that there's a combination of uh, common techniques being applied to identify these low-risk patients. The flip side is that the high-risk patients were those patients that were identified with a MYC amplification, large cell anaplastic phenotype, or metastatic disease at, uh, at presentation. So that was the paper by Ellison. Not to get into too many details, but do you know if there was any of those features made it high risk, or did you have to have a combination or all of them? Any of those features. It was or. Any single. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Interesting. Well, what I like about this is it's um, very practical in terms of being able to implement it, like you said, yes. worldwide, essentially. And I think out of the group of papers, this one was the most practical of the group. Now, the rest of the two of the papers did a more conventional, shall we speak, uh, analysis of uh, microarray data on these patients. So basically, they did gene expression analysis from, a, from in, in, in these two papers, gene expression analysis from large groups of patient uh, material, tumor, uh, tumor material from patients, and then applied um, bioinformatic uh, analysis to subdivide these patients into groups um, and tried to identify different pathways or markers that would be associated with these groups. So the first of these papers is entitled Medroblastoma Comprises Four Distinct Molecular Variants with the first author of Paul Northcott. And uh, he works out of a, uh, one of the major labs in this field uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Ontario. That's Taylor's lab? Yes, that's correct. Michael Taylor's lab. And they uh, profiled 103 medulloblastomas by gene expression as well as by uh, DNA copy number aberration, so uh, two different modalities. And they applied, of, of course, their bioinformatic analysis to the, this group of uh, this uh, set of data and identified four distinct non-overlapping uh, molecular variants of this disease. Two of them, once again, we have known very well in the past, the Wnt group and the sonic hedgehog group that we talked about just previously, and then two other groups called group C and D. And they found some very interesting uh, clinical correlates uh, between these three groups. So, for example, from an onset point of view, uh, these four different groups uh, have different age-related profiles. So, for example, sonic hedgehog tumors occur either in the very young or in the very old patients. And by very old, we're talking about very old in the pediatric age group. Um, but we also know that almost every single adult patient that gets medulloblastoma falls within the sonic hedgehog group. The group C patients, which is one of the worst outcome patients, is actually the worst outcome from an overall survival point of view. These patients all seem to cluster in the, 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 the middle age group from the six to 10 range, depending on which um, 
sort of a, a group of patients you look at. But more importantly, they also tried to uh, make the correlation as the pe pre previous paper did to uh, identify immunohistochemical markers, a single marker that could try to identify each of these four groups of, uh, of uh, patients. And so what they propose uh, as markers by immunohistochemistry is a protein called DKK1 for the WID group, SFRP1 for the sonic hedgehog group, NR, NPR3 for group C, and KCNA1 for group D. And obviously, if uh, a perspective, and they did actually do a validation set of tumors and, and, and showed that these four different markers could uh, differentiate pa patients uh, in a, in a non-overlapping medroblastoma subset of uh, tumors. And, uh, and once again, was able to subgroup these patients into the four different subgroups that had the same clinical outcome as their test set. So that's so, pretty practical, too, since that's all by immunohistochemistry. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and obviously, I think uh, these types of markers are being tested in, on a prospective uh, uh, level now. So the third paper, uh, moving right along, is entitled An Integrative Genomic Analysis of Medulloblastoma Identifies a Molecular Subgroup that Drives Poor Clinical Outcome. This paper has a first author, uh, Yoon J. Cho, and he was working out of the group of uh, Scott Pomeroy uh, in Boston, um, combined at the you know, Boston Children's Hospital, Broad Institute, Dana-Farber, etc. This group analyzed 194 medulloblastomas, so a slightly larger group, looking essentially at gene expression analysis. And once again, using their bioinformatic analysis, which is slightly different from the previous, previous paper, they actually identify, they, they claim to identify six molecular subgroups. Two of them, once again, still are the same, Sonic Hedgehog and Wnt. So those are very robust groups in anybody's data sets. And then the other four groups... You know, if you look at the heat map, you could argue that uh, the four groups are perhaps not four, but maybe just three or, or whatever. But within the, that four groups, they also identify a very poor, uh, a poor actor among that those four groups. And that's, uh, for, for them, they call it group C1. And this is a group that is characterized primarily by a activation signature for MYC which is a very well-known oncogene uh, uh, that's known to be amplified in a certain subset of tumors. But here we're looking at gene expression. So uh, not all of these tumors with a MYC gene expression signature were MYC amplified. But previously, we've been using MYC amplification. As, as we know from the first paper, we know, know that that's also a bad outcome uh, marker. So these first three papers kind of give a similar message that there is a bad outcome group that the bad outcome group is um, associated with MYC amplifications or MYC gene expression signatures, and that we really should be identifying this group at the time of diagnosis for intensive treatment. Well, also, it tells us about the biology of these different cancers, what's driving them, perhaps opens up uh, the idea of different types of targeted therapies for different subgroups of patients. Uh, but certainly, all this needs to be validated. And one of my concerns in terms of the validation is that you've got sort of different ways of categorizing these patients. So I can Im imagine different trials coming up, uh, being conducted that enroll patients in different subsets based on different criteria. So are we going to be able to compare those different studies? And do you know if there's any effort by these groups of people to get together and have some sort of consensus for ongoing studies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've kind of heard through the grapevine, there's, uh, uh, there is no uh, review article out yet, but I've heard through the grapevine that the major players in this field uh, from, you know, the Toronto group, St. Jude group, people in Boston, as well as people overseas in, in uh, Germany that are doing this kind of analysis of uh, medulloblastoma tumors have uh, met and have sort of hashed out their data as a group. And 
there should be a review article uh, coming out shortly, I think uh, very soon in the new year, that will sort of set out some uh, agreed upon criteria for subgroups, how to identify them, uh, so that uh, going forward, we can do the right clinical trial to test, as we say, prospectively, uh, what these subgroups really mean in a real-world treatment setting. Excellent. So the fourth paper that came out uh, in this issue of Journal of Clinical Oncology was actually from the same set of authors as the last paper from Boston. The first author on this paper, however, is uh, Pablo Tamayo. And this title, the title of this paper was Predicting Relapse in Patients with Medulloblastoma by Integrating Evidence from Clinical and Genomic Features. This paper was somewhat similar to the first paper by David Ellison in that they basically are building stepwise a set of criteria for how to uh, predict relapse by including at the basis clinical features and then adding one by one either data from, from gene expression data. And then, uh, so they find that by adding gene expression data to this, just the pure clinical uh, features of the patient, they get a more predictive model. And then by adding on top of that information on pathway analysis of the gene expression, they get an even better model. And then finally, if they include data, that data from copy number analysis, uh, so looking at amplifications, um, their model is somewhat uh, refined. So, so it's, it's, it's more of a uh, techniques paper, but, uh, and once again, I, don't think that this particular paper is as applicable to sort of the real world pathology lab in a non quaternary care children's hospital. But uh, nevertheless, I think this is, this is going to form sort of the basis. The ideas in this paper are going to form the basis for this um, review article that I just talked about. Recently. Yeah, this, this paper looks like it involves some high level statistics and mathematical modeling, but yeah. uh, it's nice to see all this effort going towards uh, these patients and I'm glad to hear about the integrative approach. It's certainly been a banner year for genetic analysis of medulloblastoma. I thought I'd finish up the medulloblastoma with two quick papers um, briefly uh, that have to do with treatment and side effects. There was a report in pediatric blood and cancer that talked about a two-patient report. Basically, certainly that level of a report doesn't have the same impact as some of the things we just talked about, but the, this is entitled Bevacizumab and Arena-Tecan in the Treatment of Children with Recurrent slash refractory medulloblastoma. Uh, first author is Dolly Aguilera, uh, and the senior author is Jason Fancuzaro. Apologies for pronunciation. This is out of the uh, program at Emory in, in Atlanta. And basically, they treated two patients that had recurrent or refractory medulloblastoma with these drugs. One of them also got temozolomide, and they had uh, stable disease for prolonged periods of time, 130 months, and one 18 months, which uh, that, that second patient had a near complete response for that long. And so basically they proposed that these might be useful agents for treating patients with this high-risk uh, disease, but certainly two case reports doesn't make a clinical trial and needs to be uh, tested in a larger series. Absolutely, but this is a very important subject because we do know that uh, uh, we have 30% of our uh, medulloblastoma patients that relapse, and we know that in the relapse setting, we have a very poor outcome. So anything that gives these patients prolonged uh, survival is um, would be a great idea to try, and I'm pretty sure that there is a, uh, a trial for relapse sure. uh, medulloblastoma going on right now for this. And then the final paper appeared in Radiation Oncology. Uh, in June, it's entitled Low Early Ototoxicity Rates for Pediatric Medulloblastoma Patients Treated with Proton Radiotherapy. This was a study done 
at uh, a number of centers that have proton beam therapy, including MD Anderson in Houston. And here they did a retrospective review of 23 children treated with proton beam radiotherapy. Of course, for our listeners not familiar with proton beam, this is a technique for delivering radiation that reduces scatter to non-intended uh, off-target sites. Right. And so it uh, certainly, this is a hearing loss is a problem with both chemotherapy and radiation for children with medulloblastoma, and proton beams reduce the radiation dose to the cochlea. And the question was whether that uh, re really reduces the effects on hearing or not. This is not a comparative trial. They didn't do a historical retrospective. They didn't do a prospective comparison to patients that didn't get proton beam, uh, but they did evaluate 23 children, both pre- and one-year post-radiotherapy uh, testing, and uh, excluding patients who had hearing loss prior, or at least excluding those ears, they evaluated 35 ears in 19 patients uh, for analysis, and uh, they did find that the incidence of hearing loss was somewhat low. Across all, all uh, frequencies, they did have decreased uh, hearing loss, but uh, it seemed to spare the, by and large, spare the hearing loss in the vocal uh, range, and the high level was uh, spared as well. So uh, basically they conclude that uh, they saw a low rate of severe hearing loss. I think uh, 5% was the um, rate of high grade, grade 3 or 4 ototoxicity, and that that seemed to be a favorable rate. Uh, so they thought that looked promising for the use of proton beam therapy in these patients. Yeah, proton beam therapy has really uh, uh, received a lot of attention, especially in our group of patients in neuro-oncology. And I was looking, you know, when I saw this, these numbers, I was looking really carefully at this paper to see if they were able to compare it to anything historical. And buried somewhere in the, in the uh, discussion, they do say that there are a couple of studies that looked at um, the incidence of ototoxicity or ear problems in more conventional types of radiation, so-called IMRT, and it looked like in one study the IMRT, the, the ototoxicity was higher in the IMRT group, but in another study it was very similar. They do mention, however, that the low-level uh, ototoxicity appears to be much lower in the proton beam group than in these other groups. But it's a complicated subject because, as you pointed out, uh, ototoxicity is not just uh, caused by radiation, but it's also there's also chemotherapy that plays a role in here. And so whenever you're looking at these patients and comparing rates of uh, hearing loss, uh, you have to look at the amount of uh, chemotherapy that they received, in particular cisplatin, of course. Right. I think proton beam, in theory, has a lot of advantages, but it still needs to be further studied to determine really what the degree of those advantages are. Let's turn our attention now to just two papers on ependymoma. Yeah, so ependymoma is the uh, third most frequent tumor that occurs in the pediatric age group, brain tumor, sorry, that occurs in the pediatric age group. And as such, it sometimes doesn't receive as much uh, attention as uh, gliomas or medulloblastomas. But nevertheless, uh, some interesting work has really been done in the last couple of years on this tumor. The first paper I cho uh, that, that we chose is from uh, was published in Nature magazine, really at the end of 2010, but we'll put it in this group. The first author was Rob Johnston, and he was working out of the group of Richard Gilbertson in St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. Um, but they had collaborators uh, in Toronto as well as in, uh, at other places uh, across the country as well. And the title of this paper was Cross-Species Genomics Matches Driver Mutations and Cell Compartments to Model Ependymoma. 
So this group had previously demonstrated by doing uh, gene expression analysis and copy number analysis on human tumors that you could separate tumors that occur in different locations of humans, that is the supranatorial location or the top part of the brain, the posterior fossa where the cerebellum sits, and then the spinal cord. So ependymomas occur in all three of these locations, but this group had previously demonstrated that tumors that occur in these three locations arise from different cells of origin and have different genetic profiles. So what they tried to do was to take this information and see if they could apply this to, uh, if they could pull out driver mutations from these three different locations and show that these driver mutations could actually uh, lead to tumors using specific cells of origin from these three locations. So it was actually a, quite an a epic study because what they were able to do was to isolate neural stem cells from the three regions of the brain that I just mentioned and characterize them. And they showed that there were gene expression similarities in these neural stem cells to the tumors that were occurring specifically in these three different locations, suggesting that the neural stem cell somehow programs or the proteins that are expressed in the neural stem cells are contributing to the tumor phenotype. So then what they did was for one particular group of tumors, and that was the supratentorial group, they, uh, I, I, they had previously identified this gene called efrin B2 as, or EPHB2, efrin B2, which is a uh, receptor tyrosine kinase gene as one of the uh, strongest genetic features that was pulled out of um, the supratentorial group. So they overexpressed this particular protein in stem cells from these three different regions and put them back into the brain of a mouse. And what they found was that only if you put the right driver mutation in the right stem cell could you get a tumor. This paper, I think, was really driving home the concept that tumorigenesis is really a combination not just of the mutations that are being induced in different types of cancers, but also the specific cell of origin of each type of cancer. And this is, once again, just to, to drive home this point, by histology, if you look under a microscope, these three different types of ependymomas, supratentorial, posterior fossa, and spinal, spinal cord, look identical. A pathologist cannot tell the difference between the three location, tumors from the three locations under a microscope. But at the genetic and at the cell of origin level, they are clearly different diseases. And uh, we really need to be thinking about them at this level if we were to find effective chemotherapy, for which there is none right now for ependymomas. And then the second uh, paper uh, was published in Cancer Cell, and its title was Delineation of Two Clinically and Molecularly Distinct Subgroups of Posterior Fossa Ependymoma. The first author on this paper was Hendrik Witt, although he also has collaborators on this side of the pond, including the people in Toronto. Oh, yes, and I forgot to mention that uh, there's a strong collaboration. He has a strong collaboration with a group in Russia, uh, mainly for uh, getting tumor samples. That was also Richmond, Virginia, San Francisco. Sorry, um, yes, yes. A lot of places, Poland, Germany. Okay. <laughs> so um, in this paper, they focus now on just the posterior fossa tumors and on gene expression analysis combined with uh, clinical features. The reason why they wanted to focus on the posterior fossa tumors in ependymoma is because this is the most frequent site that affects uh, the pediatric age group. And what they found was that by gene expression, you could clearly segregate the posterior fossa tumors alone into two different expression groups and that these two different groups had a very different outcome. So the group A patients were the younger patients. Their tumors tended to have 
um, more genomic instability with additional chromosomal gains and losses. They had a much worse outcome than group B patients who were the older patients. And older meaning what kind of age? Yes, meaning in the teens. Okay. As opposed to younger patients, uh, you know, less than 10. Group B was centered around 20, but it included anything above 10, basically. So the group A patients did much worse. Now, they were able to identify some markers doing pathway analysis that kind of makes sense with this. So once again, the patients that did much better, the group B patients had a signature, gene expression signature that was consistent with microtubules and cilial genesis, suggesting that they're, they look a little bit more mature. The cells look more like ependymal cells. Whereas the group A patients, their predominant gene expression features were all sorts of pathways that are associated with high-grade tumors like uh, MAP kinase and angiogenesis and receptor tyrosine kinase signaling. This is sort of an explanation for the the different uh, biologies of these two tumors. And then the last thing that they were able to identify, which is once again very useful for the pathologist, is uh, markers, a single immunohistochemical marker that could identify these two groups. Uh, So the marker for group A was NEL2 or N-E-L-L-2, and the marker for group B patients was LAMA-2, or L-A-M-A-2. Uh, and these were markers by immunohistochemistry. So once again, a paper that is uh, uh, suggesting that we need to be thinking about different clinical subgroups of patients for different uh, types of treatment. So if I get this right, the first paper we talked about looked at different mutations and ependymomas that were arising in different locations. This paper is looking at the same location, right. so it's taking one of those locations and further dividing it into higher and lower risk groups. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, you could rightly ask the question, how many different subgroups do we have to divide things up into? Right. And um, And do the other locations also have different subgroups within them? I think undoubtedly they will, yes. Okay, let's finally turn to gliomas. First two papers have to do with BRAF, which is a topic we touched on before. In episode 19, our listeners might recollect that we talked about vemurafenib, which was a BRAF inhibitor specific for a particular mutation of BRAF, the V600E mutation. BRAF has been investigated and important for a lot of different cancers, and in one of these papers, uh, it was looked at in pediatric low-grade astrocytoma patients. And as you know, Lionel, you're probably one of the world's experts in this, when those are completely resectable, patients do quite well, but what about when these tumors are not completely resectable, so-called clinically relevant patients. And in this study, they looked at 70 consecutive patients they collected and added. they also added 76 more tumors diagnosed pre, in previous eras, 1985 to 2010, and examined BRAF alterations by genetic methods, PCR, FISH, and SNP arrays, and looked at the correlation of BRAF mutations with progression-free survival. And in particular, one of the mutation types fell out, which uh, was a fusion protein between BRAF and another gene called KI. AA-1549. All patients with that particular BK fusion uh, are still alive, and their progression-free survival uh, was much, much better than those who didn't have that fusion. So 61% have not had any progression, uh, as opposed to only 18% that had not had any progression if patients lacked that. So although part of this is a seemingly a perspective and a combined retrospective study, seems to indicate that this is a favorable risk this genetic finding is BK fusion for these patients with low-grade astrocytoma. 
Yeah, that's a really important finding because, um, you know, we struggle with the patients in which we can't take out the tumor entirely in trying to decide whether or not to treat them further or to hold back on treatment because we don't, you know, overall these patients have a fairly good outcome and we want to minimize the amount of uh, side effects that we give them. This uh, may be a very important marker for which patients we need to be considering uh, less treatment for and which patients we need to be considering more treatment for. And this paper came out in Clinical Cancer Research in July from the group in uh, Ontario, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Another paper has to do with BRAF, but this time in malignant astrocytoma, and looked at the actual mutation that we talked about before, the V600E, and found that in pediatric malignant astrocytomas, approximately 10% of cases actually had the same mutation that we had previously talked about in episode 19 that was in malignant melanoma and suggesting that this may be a driver mutation in these patients. And they looked at mouse models using the inhibitor, not exactly the vemurafenib that's FDA approved, but a, basically a, a similar one, I think a tool compound also made by the company Plexicon. And this specific inhibitor was able to block the division, the proliferation of cells in vitro, and also to decrease the growth of tumor tumors in their uh, xenograph mouse models, suggesting that there is going to be a subset of patients with uh, astrocytoma that could benefit from this kind of therapy. Yeah, and the, the really critical thing here is that this uh, compound, I think, will have to be used very carefully, as has been shown in the uh, melanoma data. And now these people suggest in the high-grade glioma data that in the absence of this particular mutation, in other words, if the BRAF protein is wild type, is not mutated, uh, that this compound uh, might actually cause a paradoxical increase in the signaling pathway that it's regulating and, and potentially lead to a increased tumor growth. So um, that's something to keep our eye on. Yeah, and this paper was also published in Clinical Cancer Research, came out of the uh, James Lab, David James, in the Brain Tumor Research Center in San Francisco at UCSF, uh, and included several collaborators, including Georgetown, University of St. Jude, and the Institute for Cancer Research at Royal Marsden Hospital in, in the UK, as well as uh, Queen Mary University of London in, in the UK. The first author was Theodore Nicolades. And then you had a couple other papers about treatment. Yeah, so we'll wrap up with a couple of papers looking at uh, treatment for high-grade gliomas in children. The first paper is entitled Temozolomide in the Treatment of High-Grade Gliomas in Children, a report from the Children's Oncology Group. This was published in the journal Neuro-Oncology. Uh, the first author with Kent was Ken Cohen, who is from Hopkins, uh, but includes many authors that are associated with the Children's Oncology Group from many different centers. This study was based on a uh, results from high-grade gliomas, high-grade astrocytomas in adults, in which a very large study published in 2005, but a very large study came out that indicated that adults with high-grade uh, astrocytoma have a clinical benefit from being treated with this new drug called temozolomide in combination with radiation. And so naturally, we uh, in the pediatric uh, world decided to try this out in our patients as well, and that's, uh, and that's what this uh, uh, paper is reporting. So in this particular study, which was ACNS0126, the Children's Oncology Group study, once again, was a phase two study, high-grade gliomas, both anaplastic astrocytomas and glioblastoma multiforme, and included 107 patients. 
and these patients were, it was a phase two study, so these, this was not a, a randomized or comparative study. It was, uh, all the patients were treated with radiation therapy and, uh, adjuvant chemotherapy with temozolomide. The temozolomide was given concurrently with the radiation as well as uh, post-radiation. The outcome was that the three-year event-free survival was 11% and the overall survival, three-year overall survival was 22%. The important comparison is with historical trials done by the COG and um, or the predecessor to the uh, COG, the CCG. And when you compare those numbers, they're essentially identical to all the previous trials that have been done on this particular disease in children, suggesting that temozolomide offers no benefit to our previous treatment. This study is slightly different from the adult study because the adult study was a randomized trial of radiation alone to compare it to radiation and temozolomide and found a clear benefit for temozolomide over radiation alone. The comparative group here is a previous trial, which was radiation plus a gamish of conventional chemotherapeutic agents. So all we know is that temozolomide is no better than whatever we were using before, but it still might be better than radiation alone. Nevertheless, the numbers themselves are, are quite dismal and, um, and really clearly point out that we need a lot of, to do a lot of work in this uh, uh, disease. Yeah, it's really disappointing. I mean, a lot of work went into the study, obviously, and there's, there was hope based on the adult literature. But, uh, and this is why we have to do the research to get the answer to know you know, whether or not to pursue something. But yes. Then, unfortunately, in a similar vein, uh, this last paper was published in Journal of Neuro-Oncology entitled Radiotherapy with Concurrent and Adjuvant Temozolomide in Children with Newly Diagnosed Diffuse Intrinsic Pontine Glioma. Uh, the first author on this paper was Andrea Chasseau, and I pronounce it such because this is a group from France who conducted this uh, study. And once again, uh, DIPG or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma is a subset of uh, high-grade gliomas in the pediatric age group for which uh, we have no effective treatments for, essentially. We know that radiation will give uh, uh, some prolonged survival for these patients, but really does not offer anything in the way of cure. And so once again, based on the adult study, we tried, uh, this group tried uh, to add temozolomide concurrently with radiation as well as afterwards. They examined 21 patients that were treated in this way. And what they found was that the median time to progression was 7.5 months and the median survival was 11.7 months. This was a phase two study, so they compared to historical data for this group of tumors, which is readily available. And uh, once again, these numbers do not show any improvement whatsoever based uh, compared to the historical data. Combined, these two papers are suggesting that the biology of high-grade gliomas in children, both the pontine ver version and the tumors in other locations, is going to be significantly different from the biology of, um, of adult tumors, and that we need to be thinking out of the box about treatment for these patients. Yeah, both of them are disappointing, and I really hate to end our podcast on a, a low note, but it is the reality of the situation. I, I think we started with some excitement about the, what's being learned about some of these different types of brain tumors, particularly the medulloblastoma and ependymoma with all the new fangled high-tech genetic studies, and hopefully those will someday lead to more effective therapies, but certainly there's a long way to go for all of these. There's a very long way to go, and uh, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast. We want uh, people out there to be aware of the areas that we're having difficulty in and the research that's exciting in these areas as well, and hopefully... Um, with more people being aware of this, more people will get into the research and, uh, and support the research and we'll start making some real gains.
Well, with that, uh, we do encourage our listeners to write us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org or post comments or questions on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast. I usually send out a tweet when we record a new episode to whet your appetite, and then again when we post one. You can also sign up for automatic notification of new postings using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks again to Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, and Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatments options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.